Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to Colonel Cornbread in the case of the Confederate Ruby. Tis I, the titular character himself, Colonel Cornbread. Corey bought me all this recording equipment and left it with me so I could chime in from time to time without him feeling the burden of constant time travel. All this is a bit above my pay grade, but to hear him tell it, he created some sort of a, oh, what was it he said, a, a hole for a worm or something, a, uh, a rip in the space-time a wormhole. That's what it was, a wormhole. I got me a wormhole so I can reach y'all in the future. He let me hear the first couple episodes of Colonel Cornbread in the case of the Confederate Ruby, and while I was entertained, I had a bit of a problem with the narrator. He took a whole lot of liberties and sort of went into business for himself, and I thought it was sort of twisting my story around. I brought this up, and as it turns out, he and Corey didn't get along that well anyway, so he's since been let go. Corey didn't divulge all the details, but from what I gathered, it seems like he was drinking too much at work and perhaps dipped into the company's petty cash a time or two. So it goes. Anyways, Corey asked me if I'd be willing to narrate this final chapter, and seeing as how I'm one of the only two men living that had a first-hand account, I was happy to oblige. In recapping this story so far to refresh your memory or so those just joining us are not lost, I will also be addressing a couple inconsistencies that our narrator created by failing to mention certain events because they didn't fit his, well, his narrative. When our story began, we met a sweet farmhand by the name of William who was in a post-coital embrace with a beautiful gal who we would later find out was none other than Annabelle Johnson, the wife of the victim of the robbery that this story is all about. You hear William confess to the pastor, ambiguous as it may have been, the sin of taking something that didn't belong to him. Well, surely with William's clear motive to steal Annabelle away from Randall Johnson, yet needing the finances to support her lifestyle, you would think this was a fairly open and shut case. Or, at least that's what our narrator wanted you to believe. I myself am not a writer of storybook fiction and am thus not in the business of deceiving my audience just for a plot twist. I am just a man. A simple man from the South who fought for the Union in the Civil War who then went on to solve crimes in my hometown for the very people who called me a blood traitor. That old chestnut. What the narrator left out in order to keep you guessing was that William's confession of taking something that didn't belong to him was in reference to his extramarital affairs with Miss Annabelle. It wasn't theft he was confessing to. It was adultery. I know this because a certain pastor began to care less about pastoral parishioner confidentiality when I pressed him on it. He thought it best for William to lose faith in their friendship than to lose his freedom or even life due to the legal system's pension for scapegoating the poorest of us and moving on to the next thing. I admired that about the pastor, but frankly, it was irrelevant. You see, I know William didn't take the ruby. I knew the minute I stepped foot in Randall Johnson's house who had took it, or at least I'd narrowed it down to two people. It wasn't a question of who done it anymore. It was a question of why. Another thing the narrator left out was my pet possum Percy's penchant for sniffing out clues. 
Matter of fact, the damn narrator hardly mentioned Percy the Possum at all. Here we got a cute little crime-solving possum, and you don't think that adds vibrance to the yarn you're spinning? If I didn't know any better, I'd say that son of a bitch had something against possums. It's unfair, but many people do. Possums have long been associated with disease and general ne'er-do-wellness, but nothing could be further from the truth. They are adorable little creatures who are so beneficial to our ecosystem and are no more prone to rabies than anything else. Perhaps they are judged by the way they look, but need I remind you ignorant wretches of the story of the ugly duckling? Ooh, I apologize, I digress. It's just that I am very passionate about righting the wrongs that have befallen our possum friends due to negative PR over the years. Anyways, where was I? Oh, yes, I knew right away that the crime was committed from someone inside the house, and Percy is the reason why. One thing the narrator was right in saying was that I did mention the general state of dustiness the home was in. The Johnsons were clearly between servants, and as an aristocratic Southern belle and former Chickalookie, Georgia first ballot debutante, Miss Annabelle was neither inclined nor skilled enough to take matters into her own hands. When Percy was tiptoeing over to where the shattered glass laid after the break-in, I noticed something. Percy had left little paw prints all over the house, but not on the front porch, directly in front of the broken window. That was the only part of the house that had been swept. It doesn't take a genius to deduce that that is because the window had been broken from inside the house. Realizing that this is not how the glass would fall on a genuine break-in, they then swept the glass up and placed it on the inside of the house. I can't fault the narrator too much as I did not immediately divulge this information to Augie. You see, there was reward money, but we were also being paid by the day for our services and were able to expense meals. Forgive me, but seeing as how Randall Johnson had just insulted me and never treated me or anyone else with respect to begin with, I was more than happy to take advantage and stretch his dollar as long as possible. Plus, I hadn't seen Augie in a long time, and I didn't want that reunion to be cut shorter than it had to be. There are a few more reasons for withholding the information that seem important to bring up now. Considering I now knew that the crime was an inside job, there were two possibilities at hand. Number one, Annabelle did it. It is possible that Annabelle stole the ruby so that she would have the means to leave Mr. Johnson behind and forge ahead into a new life with the sweet, simple William the farmhand. If this were true, then not only was I supportive of such a move and thus wouldn't give her up, I was also afraid of what Mr. Johnson would do to her if he found out. Annabelle's reasoning for wanting to rid herself of Mr. Johnson was not purely coming from a place of new and unbridled passion. I mean, to know the type of man that Mr. Johnson is is to understand why his temperament might hoist his wife into the arms of another. And a man filled with such evil, such poison, well, there's no telling what her consequences might have been were he to find out. That's possibility number one. Possibility number two actually frightened me the most. Possibility number two is that Mr. Johnson himself did it, 
and that this is all part of something much greater than the ruby itself. Were that true, he is the last man on earth for which I would flippantly point my finger. So, having deduced it down to the why more than the who, Augie and I continued on with our investigation. Annabelle was very willing to give us the names of those who knew the whereabouts of the ruby. She gave them up so quickly, in fact, I was convinced it was her. But at the same time, why frame the crime scene? Why not just take the ruby and be gone in the dead of night? Perhaps I was not giving Annabelle enough credit. If she goes with my plan, Mr. Johnson immediately knows what happened. He uses all of his resources to hunt her down, bring the scorned lovers to justice, and go on about his life with, if nothing else, closure. But if she plays her cards right, he could think it was anyone. Why, he'd drive himself mad with curiosity and rage, and in the midst of his turmoil, she could disappear or, hell, double down and fake her own kidnapping. Get the ransom money, and then you don't even have to sell the ruby. You can hang on to it for a rainy day. Now, I must admit, I have been known to lose sight of things by ascribing too much credit to my gut instincts. Because it's not as if the suspects I'd ruled out on a lark were without motive. We were very aware that Mr. Johnson had since pulled his tithes away from the local church. In a town like Chickalooky, a pastor often has to rely on the generosity of one prominent family to fill the hole left by those unable to grace the offering plates with anything more than well wishes and a smile. I needn't remind you that this ordeal took place at the birth of the Reconstruction era, and to say that these were lean times for the townsfolk would be an understatement. You'll remember that Augie and I noticed that despite the pastor's recent financial woes, the church was adorned with new stained glass windows. Alarming, sure, but for the love of God, surely the pastor was not this foolish. Why steal the ruby only to use the money on a vanity project instead of something the church actually needed? Oh, I can hear you saying to yourself right now, Colonel Cornbread, you must be naive to the workings of the Christianity business because spending money on things that don't matter instead of helping the poor and needy is in the Southern Baptist 101 textbook. I'll allow that, but I'll just say that the pastor is many things, but a dumb man is not one of them. Surely he'd know how much of a smoking gun that would appear to be, and thus not go through with it entirely, or at the very least, wait a while before doing anything so brazen. And of course, I knew I was correct, but forgive me if I derive some sort of sick, sadistic pleasure in getting the pastor to confess to his involvement in the seedy, gambling underbelly of Chickalooky. I know it's something I need to work on, but I, I have developed a general distrust of those in positions of power who gained it by proselytizing what I deem to be, and pardon my French, bull hockey. And what about Barnaby Buxton, the proprietor of the Chickalooky Theater? I can tell you one thing with 100% certainty. That's who Augie had pegged the entire time. Oh, the way he'd lay it out made perfect sense. Barnaby was in the exact same position our pastor was in. With Randall Johnson's patronage expunged, the theater was bleeding through the margins. 
And, as Augie would say, to add to the desperation, Bonnaby was also a massive drunk which only served to exacerbate the fact. Augie pointed out something I hadn't thought of. On the night we saw the performance at the theater, a local man had to fill in for the reading of Shakespeare. The part was originally intended for a traveling British actor who, for one reason or another, had to drop out last minute. This would have been the perfect accomplice for Barnaby, a man from parts unknown to the natives blazing through town and with seemingly no motive. He could pocket the ruby, hop on horseback or a wagon, and be on to the next town or mining camp to perform his piece with no one any wiser. Then, once everything cooled down, return the ruby to Barnaby and accept his finder's fee. This, of course, is all contingent on something we know does not exist. Honor among thieves. While plausible, I couldn't help but think that Augie had a personal vendetta against this man. Augie was as close to a best friend as I've ever had, except Percy, of course, and I loved Augie with all my heart, but that doesn't mean he was a man without his faults. To put it in perhaps the least damning of ways, Augie didn't particularly care for theater folk. He would often say things like, I don't have a problem with theater folk so long as they don't do their theater stuff in front of me. I pointed out that if you don't want people to be able to be themselves in front of you, then by definition, you had a problem with it, but Augie wasn't hearing it. He'd say, it's just not good for the children. They want to turn all of our kids into theater people. Anyways, point is, Augie was dead set on bringing Barnaby in on charges. That is, until we discovered that not only was Barnaby indeed at the theater on the night of the robbery, but that the fabled Shakespearean-trained Englishman never existed in the first place. Barnaby was so worried about his ticket sales, and this was stressing him out more than usual because for the first time, he couldn't afford his normal advertisements in the Chickaluki Times Free Press and the neighboring town's papers. Cosmopolitan Chickaluki may not be, but people from miles around did flock to the theater to catch a show. Knowing his marketing reach was limited, Barnaby thought that the only way to get people's attention was with an attraction, one that's arrival would be gossiped about far and wide because not only is word of mouth the best advertising, it's also the only kind the old sot could afford. Barnaby bellied up to the bar one night telling anyone who would listen how he had arranged for a foreign thespian to take up residency in Chickalookie and bring the people what they have so long desired, culture, class, and sophistication. Barnaby thought of the idea on the spot after a snifter of gin and figured he could work out the details later. Unsurprisingly to everyone but our dearly drunken fellow, it was hard enough to communicate with those across the pond his desire for such a talent and harder still to procure one while following the necessary steps to bring a foreigner onto American soil in the wake of a war fought for the continuance of this experiment we call a country. So, now we are all caught up and are in harmonious agreement of who did not steal the ruby. 
This leads us to where our narrator left off before his departure from this project. Back to something the pastor said in a fit of desperation and undignified humility. Augie and I needed to extend our investigation to the home of one Beatrice Blackwood. I was unfamiliar with Miss Blackwood, but Augie filled me in on her reputation as the town mystic. The eccentricities she possessed would have landed her a one-way ticket off a cliff a mere century or so back, but of course the world was far more progressive in the post-Civil War South. Upon our arrival to the coven that Miss Beatrice called her home, we were greeted by a cavalcade of squawking ravens flying frantically through the cobwebs which adorned her front porch. Augie was plumb terrified, but I was thoroughly amused by the spectacle of it all. If you will remember, I was much too smart to believe in all this spiritual mumbo-jumbo. Oh, to be that naive once more. Forgive me, I'm getting ahead of myself once again. Without so much as a knock on our part, the door slowly creaked open as to invite us into the darkness that awaited on the other side. Augie tugged at my coat. Do, do you think we should just go in? What if there are snakes? I asked Augustus what prompted him to assume we were in the company of snakes, and he looked at me like I was the dumbest man he'd ever met. Don't you know anything about witches or the devil? As we walked past the parlor, a plate fell off the wall and rendered Augie plumb infantilized. Okay, that's it. Let's just get out of here, Cornbread. I'll go tell Mr. Johnson I did it. You can, you can have the reward money. Just promise you'll come visit me in jail every other Friday and extra during the holidays, okay? I smacked Augustus on his fat head and told him to calm himself. I'm sorry, Cornbread. You know how I get. Lord, I need a piece of cobbler or something. My sugar's low. Walking around Beatrice's house, we noticed the faint smell of something burning. Almost like hair. Uh, she's burning monkeys in here as a sacrifice to Satan, Cornbread. Augustus, if I have to remind you once more to gain control of yourself, I will blow this lantern out and leave you here to die. I must admit that my attitude towards Augie was a reflection of my unassuredness in my belief system. I, too, was becoming quite rattled by the ambiance in the room, but was too proud a man to admit it. All of a sudden, we heard muffled screams coming from below the house. Augustus once again wanted to tuck his tail and leave, but I grabbed him tight and covered his mouth. Regardless of my thoughts on spirituality and demons, it was clear that something troubling was afoot, and I didn't want whatever it was to know we was coming. We tiptoed down the hallway, all while the muffled screams grew louder and more pronounced. I turned to Augie, who was shaking and bordering on soiling his britches, and told him that we'd come this far and we needed to see it through. I assured him that I would protect him. Truth be told, at the time I was more than willing to take a bullet for my old friend. Augustus was the only one in town who still treated me like family despite my relocation to Yankee land. And it was my fault we were in this jam to begin with. I could have ended it all that day in Randall Johnson's parlor, but I let my ego and greed do my walking and a talking for me. As we rounded the corner of the living room, the basement door flung open and light bright as the sun pierced our eyes. 
This is going to sound like I'm telling tales out of school, but in an instant and without any work on our part, we all of a sudden found ourselves in the cellar amongst pots boiling over with God knows what and chains rattling on the walls. It was as if we had been turned to vapor and sifted through a crack in the door. One minute we were there, and the next we were here. And that's when we saw Randall Johnson. Only he looked hollowed out and half dead, more like someone Miss Mary Shelley would write about than the aristocratic asshole I had grown up hating. Augustus turned white as a sheet, and I'm certain I was a few hues off myself. Randall Johnson looked at us with a devilish grin and centipedes and all other sorts of creepy crawly bugs and worms slithered in and around his teeth like he had just washed his mouth out with a grub bucket. It was then that we heard the muffled scream again. In the corner was who I assumed to be Miss Beatrice Blackwood, on the floor, bound, beaten, gagged, and crying for help with what remaining strength she had. With that... Randall Johnson finally spoke. Well, you fools have figured it out, have you? Excellent. I didn't know what to say, because I certainly hadn't figured shit out. I was more confused now than I'd ever been. Frightened, but with no other option at play, I asked for an explanation from our former adversary turned demon. All my life I had sought to achieve great power. Ignorant as I was in my mortal days, I thought this could only be accomplished by money and jewels. I stepped on the necks of every man I came across to amass my fortune and create my empire. But all the money in the world couldn't fill the void I had for total control. When first I saw the ruby, I knew there was something special about it. But only when I met Beatrice Blackwood did I know it's true power. All the old wives' tales of her sorcery were mere comic fodder to the townsfolk, but I knew deep down that they were real. Beatrice wanted the ruby for herself, but it clings to me. There is a deep spiritual connection between myself and this mystic jewel, and it is upon which I feed. I knew that I alone could only do so much, and I needed the black magic of the witch to unleash the ruby's true potential. And here... Here it is, and now I take what is left of this harlot and cast her worthless carcass aside to begin my conquest of this mortal coil. The earth was shaking below us, and the ravens called with both majesty and terror. Randall started manifesting balls of energy from his fingertips and looked at me once again with a face only a mother could love. And that's assuming she's a very good mother. Well... Surely you're wondering why I faked the robbery, eh, Colonel? I told him that actually no, I hadn't thought about it on account of I was preoccupied with concerns of potentially meeting Satan himself. I knew the transfer of power wouldn't be instant and I needed to stall and create a diversion. Plus, I was more than happy to possibly implicate my whore of a wife. She thinks I don't know about her and that slack-jawed yokel, but I do. I have nostrils. I even gave the church a random infusion of cash to make it look like they had stolen from me. But now it matters not, for as you can see, I am now what I always knew I was. A god! (laughs) 
as I held Augie in what we thought to be our last embrace, but come to think of it, it was also our first embrace, but never mind that. As I held Augie, we suddenly felt a stillness in the room. Out of nowhere, the ravens, who hadn't shut the hell up all night, fluttered around and became one with each other in a wispy tornado of feathers. Randall's grin changed into a look of confused desperation, and where Beatrice had once sat beaten and shackled, she emerged from the ashes of the ravens like a phoenix. Sorry for using so much bird mythology, but that's what happened. With a flick of her wrist, she called out, Be gone, imposter! And Randall disintegrated on the spot like a dandelion in a windstorm. Spilling out of his cloak was a ghoulish figure with glowing green eyes, frail and frightened with its tail tucked between its legs. Is, is that Randall? Augie asked of Beatrice Blackwood. It is what's left of him. Go now, spend eternity haunting the nights, but never harming a soul. And just like that, he was cast out like a demon. So you really are a witch. If that's what you wish to call it. I am meant to keep powerful stones away from men like Mr. Johnson, though I am not always successful. I assume you've heard of Attila the Hun? Yes, that's my bad I. Got there a little late. <laughs> but you're a hero. We need to tell everyone. No, no, no please don't. I, I, I enjoy my privacy and, and relish being thought of as an undesirable. You and me both, sister. And that, my friends, was the end of Randall Johnson's hold on the town of Chickalookie. Barnaby was finally able to land that British feller for the theater, and shows are sold out months in advance. The pastor ended up having to sell the church to cover some gambling debts, but was able to keep a couple of the stained glass windows. He keeps them propped up in the tent he now preaches in. With Annabelle a widow, she was able to liquidate all of Randall's properties and create quite the nest egg for her and William to live off of while they spend their days making sweet, stanky love in Randall's old plantation. And as for me and Augie, well... After a much-deserved vacation, Augustus convinced me to move back to Chickalookie and start a private detective service with him. And boy, do I still have some stories to tell. The End Colonel Cornbread in the Case of the Confederate Ruby was written by, performed by, directed by, and produced by Corey Ryan Forrester a bonuscory.com production. Y'all come back now, you hear?